again, praise team. It's already been a great Sunday, amen? Well, let's get into God's Word here, and so if you'll turn with me to Revelation chapter 12, we'll get back into our series on the 11th hour. We call it that because we're talking about the events of the book of Revelation that are in the end, the end times, the end of, of, uh, of the, the, the story of, of humanity. But it's, it's just, uh, it's been a, a, an interesting study for me. How many of you enjoyed or learned something new as you've been studying the book of Revelation? I don't know about you, but, but I, I've studied the book of Revelation before. I studied it in college, studied it again in, in seminary, and I was still too afraid to, to start preaching from the book of Revelation. And, and then after studying the book of Daniel, I said, this is the time to do it, right now. And I have learned so much through, uh, through this study. But if you'll turn with me to Revelation chapter 12, uh, we're talking about uh, the, the, the final days. And thank you, that is working. Um, a few weeks ago, we were introduced to this great sign, uh, this great sign in the heavens, and John saw this this great sign that explained some of the behind-the-scenes things that have been going on from the beginning of creation all the way through to the, to the end. And, and uh, seeing this cosmic duel between good and evil, which is really between God and Satan. And in this, this great sign that he saw in the sky, there were three characters. There was a woman, and we found that that woman represents Israel. And then he saw a dragon, which is Satan himself. And then there was a third character that there was a child that the woman uh, gave birth to, and that child was Jesus Christ. And so the dragon's plan at this point was to kill the bloodline of Christ before he could save the world. And as we studied, he failed, right? He failed that. He was unable to do that. And, and then once Jesus was born, Satan's new plan was to, to kill the Messiah before he had a chance to make atonement for the world before he could pay for the sins of the world. And once again, he failed in that as well. And uh, Jesus did die on the cross. He did uh, pay for our sins. And that signaled the loss of this cosmic duel between God and Satan. At that point, once Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the grave, that sealed it. It's game over, right? It's, it's kind of like one of those situations where... Um, where if, if you like football, where you are winning by more than eight points, but the, the clock still hasn't officially gone out, but there's no possible way, maybe there's one play left, and there's no way to actually win, the, you know, for the other side to win the game. You know the game's over. You know you won, right? And uh, so the game's over. And that's kind of this situation. That's where, where it is between uh, Satan and, and God at this point once Jesus rose from the grave, which is why we celebrate that every Resurrection Sunday, right? And so, but that's not the end. Satan, Satan is still ticked and he's got a plan. He, he doesn't give up so easily. So he's got this new plan and that's where we'll pick up today in Revelation 12 starting in verse 13. So let's look at that. Revelation 12, 13. We read this. Now when the dragon, that's Satan, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Think about that for a moment. He knows that he's lost the cosmic duel, right? He knows that he's lost this battle. And so what does he do? He's, he decides to persecute the woman. Going back to that football analogy, it would be kind of like saying, all right, we know we've lost the game, but we have one more play. Let's injure as many players on the other team as we can, right? What would you call that? That's bad sportsmanship, right? And that's exactly what you have here. You have Satan saying, all right, Jesus has already been born. Jesus has already died on the cross. He's already been risen from the, from the grave. Now there's a way of salvation. So I'm going to try and at least persecute 
the woman who gave birth to that child. I'm going to persecute that, uh, that person, uh, that, that woman, which in this case is Israel. And it's interesting when you think about it from a, a historical perspective, that has Israel suffered any persecution from the time of, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ till now? Has there been any other group more persecuted than Israel during that time? I, I don't think so. And in fact, if you look at the greater biblical context and you look at, at, at even in the historical context since that time, uh, if you think of the persecutions against the Jews, we oftentimes hear about one of them, but, but this, is not, this is not a new thing. In fact, if you go all the way back to 224 AD, Rome persecuted uh, the Jews. And in, in just a few years later, in 250 AD, Carthage as well. In 351 AD, there was the Holocaust by the Persians, right? In 351 AD. And then the one that we read about in the book of Daniel that he predicted in Greece in 415 AD, that which, which sparked the beginning, that was the first one where uh, the Antiochus Epiphanes, the, the great... Uh, um, the first Antichrist from a biblical perspective, and, and that was all predicted in the Holocaust that happened there in Jerusalem uh, during that time. And then there was also the Holocaust of Epihan in 469 AD. This one might uh, surprise many, but France in 540, uh, 554 to 561 AD, Spain in 612 AD, the Visigoths in uh, 642 AD, Byzantium in 722 AD, Italy in 855 AD, northern France and Germany in 1096 AD, and, th and at that point they killed one-third of all the Jews that were alive at that time. These are not minor persecutions. These are major persecutions. When I looked it up online, you could find at least 10 minor ones between every single one of these that are mentioned here. And this is just the first millennia from that moment when Jesus Christ rose from the grave to 1096 AD. So in that first millennia, that this is what you find. And you know what? It's only gotten worse in the second millennium. Think about that. I mean, this is one group of people that has been persecuted by country after country, by empire after empire for 2,000 years. We know why. Why? It's because the person that's behind the scenes is the dragon. The person behind the scenes is inciting people to have a hatred of the Jews because they are God's chosen people. And you watch this and you see it. By the way, Revelation was written before all of these. And yet, it all came true. And we see that there's been this constant, and you can continue to go through. And uh, usually the one we hear the most about was the most recent one by Nazi Germany from 1938 until 1945 A.D. But here's the thing. Here's the, the, the kicker. When you think about all of this persecution, all of these are just foreshadows of this ultimate Jewish persecution that we read about here in Revelation chapter 12. Think about that. All of those things that have gone on, those are foreshadows of what's about to take place in Revelation chapter 12. By the way, Jesus spoke about this great persecution. I want you to connect it to some of these other texts in Scripture so we understand from a complete biblical perspective. But if you keep a finger here in Revelation 12, because we'll come back. But look at Matthew chapter 24, and verses 15 to 20. We call this the, uh, the Olivet Discourse. This is what Jesus said about this very persecution. He said, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, 
whoever reads it, let him understand. And of course, we remember because, uh, just to, to give a little context there, when it was predicted for the first time at the first Antichrist, it meant that a pig was sacrificed in the holy, in the holy uh, place. And we see that in the temple, offering an unclean animal. And we, that became the mark of when the Holocaust, the first Holocaust began. Now he's saying when that finally, finally happens in the last days. Verse 16. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or in the Sabbath. This is what I call the head for the hills speech of Jesus Christ. And he's looking at, he, he could see into the future and he saw that day. He said, there's going to come a day and it's going to be marked by what that time. Just like Daniel the prophet said, when the abomination of desolation is offered in the temple, you know it's about to happen and it's going gonna, it's gonna to get real bad real fast. This is going to be a major, major persecution. So what I've titled today's message, the, the, the wrath of of the dragon, and we see this. He, Satan will unleash his fury. But, but, look at verse 14. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Again, we've, we've learned already in the, in the book of Revelation when it talks about time that it says in Daniel that a time in, in prophecy is considered a year. So time, times, and half time, that's three and a half years. Once again, that's three and a half years. He's saying for this, there's going to be this three and a half year reprieve because the woman will be given two wings of a great eagle. And, uh, and, and she's going to fly into the wilderness. Now again, this is apocalyptic symbolism, right? So it's hard to sometimes know what exactly does that mean because there's a blur sometimes between what is literal and what is, is figurative and, or metaphorical. And so we look at this and we say, well, what does it mean that, that she's given two wings of an eagle? And I, as I read commentaries, I read some interesting uh, ideas of what that could be. In fact, um, some say that it could be that, that it's the U United States represented by the eagle because the United States is is uh, represented by an eagle uh, so often. And, and, and uh, of course, historically, the U.S. has been allies with Israel, right? In fact, during uh, the, the last Holocaust, the U.S. came to the aid during World War II and, and rescued many Jews from the, from the concentration camps. However, in, in recent years, in the last uh, decade or so, I'd say you'd, you've seen that our relationship with Israel has somewhat dwindled, has it not? And you've seen us actually making deals with enemies. People, as they cry death to Israel, and we make deals with some of these nations that are, uh, that are, that are haters of Israel. And yet, uh, in fact, you'll find, even, even in recent days, you'll find some anti-Semitic uh, comments being made without a political consequence. I remember the day where if you made an anti-Semitic co comment, then you, you would not get voted in again. Remember that day? Mm -hmm. And nowadays, nowadays, if you, you, you can talk bad about the Jews if you want, and it's okay. And we're starting to see that sentiment grow again in the world. And so I, I don't think that, that I, mean, I really think it's kind of a, an American interpretation to try and find yourselves as the hero of every story, right? And so I don't think that that's the case here. I don't think that's what he's talking about as well. In fact, I think that the most likely answer comes from reading Scripture. 
And then we read scripture about the history and we, see, we look at other times where nations rose up, rose up against Israel in scripture. I believe we'll find our answer of what it means for these, these eagle's wings to be, the, to be the imagery that's used. For example, keeping a finger again in, in Revelation 12. We'll springboard into some other texts. But let's go back all the way to the book of Exodus. Second book of the Bible. Exodus 19. In context... Pharaoh persecuted the Jews, right? Pharaoh was persecuting them. He was putting them to work, slave labor. When they were starting to outgrow them, he feared that maybe they would uh, out, out, outnumber them, him. So they, they just started wiping out the male babies. And, and uh, just, this was a great persecution in, uh, in the land. And, and uh, you know the story and, and how God brought them out. He gave the plagues. And as they, they, they were leaving Egypt, they come to this point where they're stuck between, between the army between and desert and the Red Sea. And they're at this point where we're dead. We're, they're going to they're gonna catch us. There's no place for us to go. And you remember what God did? He opens up the Red Sea and they cross on dry land, right? And, uh, and then look at what is said about that circumstance in Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 and 4. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob. Jacob is another word for Israel. And tell the children of Israel, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings. You catch that? How I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. See, this, is, this symbolism is a metaphor for God's supernatural rescue and how God comes in uh, like, like an eagle coming into his wings and snatching something out of danger and, and carrying them to safety. Some of you right now think, are you talking about the Lord of the Rings, Pastor Dave? Right? How many of you have seen the Lord of the Rings and the, and the eagles seem to always come in and fly in and save the day and carry them off to, to safety? And, and I would say, no, I'm not talking about Lord of the Rings, but I do think the Lord of the Rings is talking about this, right? I went J.R. Tolkien used that symbolism because he studied the scripture, because he was a believer, right? And so he's using that symbolism, and you've got this imagery, this symbolism of God coming in like, like, like an eagle, coming in and snatching them out of danger and bringing them to safety. This is God's supernatural rescue. In, fa- in fact, you find that, that symbolism used multiple times in the Old Testament to refer to that. There's one that I lo- it's one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament, but where God uses it in a generic sense as well. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 29 through 31, God says this, or he says this about God. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall utterly fall. But... Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let's put this back in context for a moment here. And we we look back in Revelation. What we find is there's going to be this terrible unleashing of the dragon's wrath. But God will supernaturally protect his faithful. He will supernaturally protect his remnant. Somewhere in this process. And, and, uh, and so, again, we see God being the rescuer. It goes right along with what we just sang. I lift my eyes up. My help comes from the Lord. Amen? Where, do we, where, where does our help come from? It always comes from the Lord. But you know what? 
the dragon steps it up another notch. Look at verse 15. So the serpent is used interchangeably, the word serpent and dragon throughout this passage. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. So he steps it up. Again, this is apocalyptic symbolism, right? Uh, and so we, we don't know exactly how much is literal. Are we talking about a literal flood? Maybe. Um, how much of that could, could it mean some other things as well? Um, it, it could. It could just mean the enemies of the Lord. Uh, you get the, the, the imagery, for example, in, in Jeremiah, uh, in Jeremiah 47 too, we read this. Thus says the Lord, behold, waters rise out of the north. What was he talking about? The armies, right? The, the armies of the Babylonians. And shall be an overflowing flood. They shall overflow the land and all that is in it, and the city and those who dwell within. Then the men of the city and all the inhabitants of the land shall wail. He uses this imagery of the enemies of God coming in like a flood. Could it be something like that? It very well could be as well. You get that imagery of, of you see so many enemies as they come over the hilltops, and all of a sudden it looks like just this flood coming towards you, and you get to the point where all you can do is wail and say, oh, no, we're in trouble. And this is, this is the imagery that we read about here in, in Revelation 12. The idea is, is that the serpent is going to spew out water out of his mouth like a flood and, and so that Israel would be carried away, and, uh, and we get this idea. I think it's interesting, too, that it says the serpent spewed water out of his mouth. Consistently so far in the book of Revelation, when we, when we see that something is spewed out of the mouth, what does that mean? And so there's some kind of false doctrine, false propaganda. The idea is that there's this false teaching that is going to come out of this. And, and we see it, for example, if we look at the last, uh, the last Holocaust with Hitler, and the, the propaganda was a major part of his, of his persecution against the Jews, was it not? And, and he would just, it would just spewed out of his mouth. That the, there was a whole propaganda department that would try and convince the, the, the Nazis to convince them that they were actually morally superior to the ones they were trying to annihilate and trying to convince them that really you're doing a favor to the world, you're doing a favor to the human race by ridding the world of these, of these inferior races. That was the idea. That, by the way, his racism comes straight out of Darwinistic theology. You can't really even call it theology because it's the doctrine of no God. It's the, an antithesis to theology. And so the next time people tell you that Christians are the problem in the world, then, then, then have them take a look at atheism. Right? And you have this atheistic idea that, that says, well, we are the human race. The only way to evolve the human race is for us to, to get rid of the weak, get rid of the, the more inferior races. That was the idea of, of Hitler. And he convinced the, 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 the Nazi Germany that you're actually doing a favor to mankind by wiping out this group of people, by committing acts of genocide. Horrific, horrific doctrine coming out of, of them. That's, that's the imagery that I read here when it says... It says, so the serpent spewed water out of his mouth. In other words, it's, it's, there's going to be poisonous, venomous speech coming out of his mouth. And it's going to be a, a terrible, terrible thing. And we find that this is what the earth dwellers, this is what the earth dwellers are going to be doing. In fact, the earth dwellers will see themselves as morally superior than the people that they are annihilating. And that is a sad state of affairs. But you know what? When you start looking at the world around us, you start recognizing that this is the... This, it, it sounded like it could never happen. 
but yet here we see it happening and unfolding right before our eyes. Well, what we find too is the dragon then one-ups God once again. It's like, okay, God, you're going to protect them supernaturally. He, he always takes it a step further. Look at verse 16 of chapter 12. <clears throat> we look at how God responds. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Now think about this. Here we have a, a rescuer. It's interesting that the, the terminology here is it says that the earth helped the woman. There's a couple of interpretations, right? I'll give you two interpretations of this as I read through them. One is right and one is wrong, right? So uh, usually I just, if there's two possibilities, I'll just give you the, these are two. One is, one is right and one is wrong. One I, idea that is that the earth is, is talking about the people of the earth, the, the earth dwellers, right? The uh, the earth dwellers on, on the planet and saying that, hey, look, there's a, finally a bright spot. The earth dwellers are sick of the persecution of the Jews and so they come to the rescue, right? Mm, wrong. I don't think that's the case here at all. In fact, every time the, 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 that we read the word those who dwell on the earth or earth dwellers in, in, in Greek as it's written, um, every time in the book of Revelation that we read about that, it's a negative term. And every time, it's in the context of they are the persecutors. The earth dwellers are the persecutors of the Jews in the, at this point in history. I call it history even though it hasn't happened yet, but it's as good as history because we know that when God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen, right? And so could, could it be the people of the earth? No. Uh, the people of the earth do not come to the rescue of the Jews. This would be the, the one bright light, and, you know, like, hey, mankind did something right in the book of Revelation. We don't read about that in the book of Revelation. We find it consistent. The other idea is that, that it's really talking about the earth itself, the ground. And so, in fact, you get this imagery, this idea of a flood is coming in, and you see this flood, and it's coming towards you, and you realize there's no hope at this point, and then all of a sudden you get an earthquake or something, and, and the earth starts opening up, and it swallows up all of the water. That's the imagery that we get in this, uh, in this, this great sign. That's the, the imagery that, that I see in this text, that the earth swallowed up the flood, and I believe that that's the idea here, and I believe it's also consistent with the parallel text that we find in Scripture. In fact, if you go back to, to Pharaoh and his persecution, remember when they first crossed the, the Red Sea? What was the first thing they did? When they got to the other side, the, the sea swallows over the Egyptian army, and God just pulls out this miraculous salvation out of his, out of his hat, right? And, and all of a sudden, they're there. They see that just a few moments ago, they were on one side of the Red Sea thinking, we're doomed. And then all, now they're on the other side, and the entire Egyptian army is gone. What was, what was the, norm, the natural response? What was the very first thing we find them doing? Singing. They sing what's called the Song of Moses. And they're singing. Have you ever watched The Prince of Egypt? It, it, no one's watched The Prince of Egypt? All right, we've got a new movie for tonight, all right? We're, no, just kidding. Um, it's not completely theologically accurate, the whole movie, but it was, it was accurate in that part that the first thing they did, they started singing, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed triumphantly. Or in Hebrew, as they, they actually have it in Hebrew in the, in the, in the, the cartoon. Ashira la Adonai ki I will sing unto the Lord for he has triumphed triumphantly. And it's a beautiful song. And, and in that song, I'll do this part in English, uh, but in Exodus 15, this is what they said. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Where do they come from? Egypt, where they have a ton of gods. 
The nine great gods plus the Pharaoh himself and tons of demigods. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Like, who, who are any of these other gods compared to you? Who is like you? You are glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. You stretched out your hand and the earth, what? Swallowed them. Stretched out your hand and the earth swallowed them. See the, the terminology, this idea of God's salvation? It's like the earth swallows them. It's consistent with Korah's rebellion. You might remember in the wilderness during the 40 years, there was a rebellion by Korah. And, uh, and this is what Moses said at that point. He says, and Moses said, by this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works. For I have not done them on my own will. If these men die naturally like all men, or if they are visited by the common fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. He's, he, see what he's saying? I don't have to take care of my enemies. That's not my job. That's God's job. So if, they, if, if these enemies, if they rise up and God doesn't do anything to them at this point, then, then you'll know that God didn't send me, and I'm just a man. But if the Lord creates a new thing and the, the earth opens up its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them and they go down alive into the pit, then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. See what he, he was predicting? And then guess what happens next? Imagine, Moses is saying this in front of all of Israel. Now it, it came to pass, as he finished speaking these words, I love that. They're listening to him, and he's saying, it would take a miracle, but yeah, um, if, if these people survive, then, then, then follow them. But if, if I'm sent by God, then these men are in trouble. If he finishes those words, what happens? Oh, let me go back. As it came to pass, as he finished speaking all these words, that the ground split apart under them, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up. Isn't that awesome? I mean, this is the rebellion against God's people. And with their households and all the men in Korah and all of their goods. And you go on through scripture, you find the same terminology. You find it with Dathan, Abiram, and the sons of Eliab and when they rebelled. And you look at Deuteronomy 11 uh, uh, as well. Um, uh, let, me, let me just skip to there, to there verse 6. Same thing, how the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them up. The idea here is, is that God will, once again, even in that great day of terror, God will once again miraculously protect the remnant of his people. Somehow. I don't know, I, I, I don't know exactly how he's going to do it, but somehow God is going to do it. And it wouldn't surprise me if he literally opens up the earth and swallows up the enemies who are persecuting the Jews. And they get to the point where they're persecuting Jews and they're persecuting Jews and they're persecuting Jews and they're going after them and they're killing them. And they get to the, the remnant. Those were the ones that God was protecting. And all of a sudden, God literally swallows them up. You think our God could do that? Yeah, he could do that. He's done it before. Multiple times. He could do that again without a problem. And guess what? And all of this that's going on. In fact, if you, in fact, if you, you want to take a little homework assignment, read Zechariah chapter 13. Because Zechariah 13, he predicts, he talks about this very same persecution right there. And you know how many of the Jews die in this persecution? Two-thirds of all of them that are alive at the time. He, so Satan's, Satan's wrath is strong, and he kills two-thirds of them. There's one-third that remains, one-third that remains. And you know what's interesting to me? Not one 
of the 144,000 is among those two-thirds. Think about that. How do we know that? We know that for a couple of ways. Uh, number one, verse, let's look at verse 17. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have their testimony of Jesus Christ. So those Jews who had a testimony of Jesus Christ, those Jews who had accepted Jesus Christ, were not in that number that had been persecuted. Now he sets his eyes towards them. He said, well, Pastor Dave, maybe he's just saying that some of them now were, were believers, and he's just going after those. No, because guess what? When we get to chapter 14, guess who shows up in the text again? The 144,000. Remember what God had, done, had, had promised a few chapters earlier when he said, I'm going to seal these 144,000. They're going to go through the tribulation, but they will not be harmed. And what happens? Satan is pouring it on as thick as he can. His wrath is vengeful. It is thick. It is spiteful. He is going after anyone. And guess what? He still can't touch a single one of those 144,000. Wow. But now at this point, he says, I'm, that's who I'm going for. I'm setting my sights on the faithful. I'm setting my sights on the remnant and their offspring. I think it's interesting when it talks about the rest of their offspring as well. That uh, could have a couple of, of implications here when it talks about the rest of the, the offspring. I think it could mean the rest of the Jews, which would then include the 144,000. Um, but also, the rest of the offspring could be those who would have accepted Christ. How do we know that? Because the description is, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So he's going to go not only after the Jews, but after Christians. The offspring of the Jews. The offspring of the 144,000 as well. And he's going to go after them. Now remember, uh, we're, not talking about the, the, we're not talking about us. Because at this point, where are we? We're raptured. Right? So you say, well, if we're raptured, why are there Christians on earth? That's why he left the 144,000. So they're going to have an impact. And they're going to get saved. And they're going to have the testimony of Jesus Christ. They're going to be believers on the earth at that point during this tribulation. And I believe that that's where they, they've come from. So when we think about that, let's take a, take a look at this for a moment. In the big picture, can we zoom out for a moment? Look at the big picture and see how this is going. Remember, this is a cosmic duel between God and Satan. And you might remember, uh, during this cosmic duel, you have, you have Satan who says, I want to be like the Most High. I don't, want, I don't want to serve a God. I don't want to humble myself and obey a, a God. I want to be the Most High. And what does God say? No, I have to be higher. And so Satan says, well, then I'm going to try and be a little higher yet. And then God says, no, I'm going to be higher yet. And we find what's going on all throughout history is this little one-upmanship, right? And we see that all through Scripture. In fact, when you think about it, um, <clears throat> that's, that's how it all started. God is the God over all things. And Satan says, no, I want to be like the Most High. I want it. So he one-ups one him. And, and he gets a third of the angels to join him. And then you might remember uh, that God creates the whole world. And he creates everything, uh, everything and he creates it good. And what was Satan's plan then? Well, I'm going to get mankind to sin. I'm going to get Adam and Eve to disobey the command of God. Ruin it all. <laughs> so that I can be the Most High. Anything to put God down. And God says, oh yeah? I'll create a sacrifice. 
I'll create a sacrifice for them. And he does. He creates a sacrifice. He kills an animal. He, he, he gives them a, a system of offerings and, that can cover and atone for their sins. God says, I'll create a system of sacrifice. And uh, so then Satan says, okay, oh yeah, I'm going to get the whole world to reject you then. They're not going to use the system of sacrifice. I'm going to get the whole world. And by the time you get to Genesis 6, what does it say about the whole world? They were constantly evil, always thinking about evil things, coming up with more and more schemes. And God says, okay, I'll get one up that. I will wipe out the earth with a flood. And I'm going to start over with a faithful remnant. And he does. But it was interesting this week, I was watching one of those shows that obviously pushes uh, evolution and all that kind of stuff. And, and, uh, and they were talking about these, these, this, this tower and that they had found, but it was under so much, it was under so much sedimentary, uh, you know, like sand and so on, that they, they couldn't believe it. It was in, in, um, in the Americas, actually. And they're like, we did some, some carbon dating and found that this is like between five and 7,000 years old. And how did, but this is in the middle of the desert. How did, all that, how did it get covered with all this? And I'm thinking, if you would just open your eyes. <laughs> Read the Bible, it's all there. God sends this flood, he starts over, and then Satan, what does he do? Well, I'll, I'll one-up that. I'll get the whole new world to reject you. If I can get the whole new world to reject you, and, and God says, okay, I'll one-up you again. I'll send my son. He will be the sacrifice. All those other sacrifices are just pointing towards him. He will be the ultimate sacrifice. So Satan says, okay, I can stop that. I'm going to kill the bloodline of that son. And God says, good luck. And he try, they, he, Satan tries. And God protects him. And God saves his, his, his bloodline multiple times. And, 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 uh, and God does it again. So then Satan says, well, I, I got an idea. When the, when the Savior's born, I got a plan to kill him before he can ever pay for the sins of the world. So he sends Herod. And Herod tries to kill the baby, Jesus, before he has a chance. But guess what? God one-ups him again and says... I'm going to warn him in a dream. I'm going to send him to Egypt. They're going to, they're, he's going to be just fine. And he protects the life. And, and he does. And this goes on and on throughout history. Satan says, I'll convince Jesus to sin. Remember that when that was part of his plan? I'll convince Jesus to sin. I'm going to wait until he's at his weakest point physically. He's gone 40 days without food. And then Satan goes to Jesus and, he's, and he tries to convince him to sin. Remember that? In Matthew 4, Luke 4 is another, uh, uh, another uh, reference to the same thing. And Satan is doing his best to convince Jesus to sin. Why? Because if Jesus were to sin, what would that mean? He would not be a perfect sacrifice for us anymore. It means his death on the cross would be to pay for his own sin, not for yours and mine. And guess what? Jesus lived up to the task. God is always one-upping him. No matter what Satan throws at him, it, 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 he always does it. It comes to a point, Jesus Christ grows up to be an adult. He dies on the cross and pays for the sins of every man. He rises from the grave once and for all, cementing the fact that God has won the battle. He's won the war. There's a little bit of time left on the clock. Satan has no chance of winning at this point. And so what does he do? He says, I'm going to wipe out the Jews. I'm going to hurt the Jews just to hurt you. I'm going to hurt the Jews. I'm going to persecute the Jews just to hurt you. And God went up some again and says, I'm going to protect the Jews. I'm going to, I'm going to protect them in, a, in this miraculous way as we read about here. And now Satan says, I'm going to kill a remnant. I'm going to kill the, that remnant that you've been protecting for all these 
these years, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wipe them out. What do you think is going to happen next? Do you think finally this time Satan's going to win? Or do you think God's going to win? Of course God's going to win. And we see this every time. Really, the, the whole point of this entire message today can come down to this one point, and it's this. Satan is powerful, but God is sovereign. Satan is powerful, but God is sovereign. Let's break that apart for a moment. Of course, Satan, Satan is powerful. I would tell you, don't mess with him by yourself, right? Don't play with fire. Don't get involved in the occult. or Don't, get, don't, get, don't do any of that stuff. Don't get, why? Because Satan is stronger than you. He has taken men and women that are more spiritual than you, more spiritual than me, and brought them down. Because all it takes is for them to take just a moment where they take their eyes off of God and they start focusing on themselves and say, yeah, I could be great again. And we've seen that happen to pastors who all of a sudden, they've done all this great work for the Lord and many people come to know the Lord as their, their Savior and all of a sudden they start thinking, look at the, build, the, look at the kingdom I built. Mm-hmm. Oh, Satan says, I got him. And they fall. And we hear about this, it seemed like in the 80s and 90s, we're constantly hearing about that, weren't we? And, and why? Satan is powerful, and you ought not take him for granted. But powerful is not all powerful. God is sovereign. You know what sovereign means? All powerful. Totally in control. That's what it means. The so- when we talk about the sovereignty of God, he is in total control. No matter what evil scheme Satan comes up with, God ends up using it for his own glory. Did you notice that as we went through the story of creation until now? Satan has this plan. He's like, I'm going to get God good with this one. And God says, oh, I'm going to use that plan to give myself even more glory. And we see that all through history. That no matter how powerful Satan is, God is always even more powerful. It reminds me of the words of the same author of the book of Revelation, or same writer of the book of, of Revelation, 1 John 4, 4. Greater is he that is in you than who? Than he that is in the world. Because Satan is powerful. He's great. Not in the sense of he's great. He's great in the sense of he is great. But he's not sovereign. God alone is sovereign. When I think about that, it makes me want to break out in song just like when God protected them from Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea and, and they start singing, I will sing unto the Lord for he has triumphed triumphantly. Who is like God among the gods of the world? These gods of the world are nothing compared to the one and true God. God is sovereign. How do we apply this? Two things, and we'll be on the way. Two applications. Number one, side with the sovereign. You have one lifetime to pick sides. It's appointed on a man once to die, after that, the judgment. What does that mean? The death is the point of no return. Sometime in your life, you have to choose sides, period. And I'm telling you, side with God. Side with the sovereign. He is going to win no matter what. And I'll tell you what, Satan is going to give you a bunch of lies. He's going to give you all sorts of reasons not to side with with God, but to side with yourself. Uh, He's going to tell you, oh man, you're going to have to humble yourself. You're going to have to humble yourself. You don't want to do it. You're going to have to submit to God. How many of you would like to be masters of your own universe? Well, you can't do that if you worship God. If you're going to side with the sovereign, you can't, you can't do that. You, 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 can't, you have to keep him at the top. And we say, ooh, man, I don't know. I kind of like being at the top myself, right? 
Oh, you're going to miss out on all the joys of sin. You don't want to miss out on the joys of sin. But as we learn, sin is pleasurable. I wouldn't call it joyful. It's pleasurable for a season. In other words, it might be fun for a moment. But sin or illegitimate joys are always, are always going to lose their, their sense of, of joy with time and repetition. Right? That's why Cedar Point has to keep building bigger and better, uh, you know, what do you call it? Um, Montaña Rusas. Roller coasters. Thank you. I don't know why my mind just went to switch to Spanish, but sometimes it does that. And, um, and so roller coasters. They have to build bigger and better roller coasters all the time. Why? Because, you know, the, the 150th time on the mine ride just doesn't do it for you anymore. So you need to move to the Blue Streak, into the Gemini, into the... You have to keep... Do it. Why? Because the illegitimate pleasures, and I'm not saying that you should not do roller coasters. I love roller coasters. But over time, that's, you're, all of those joys are going to diminish. They call it the law of diminishing returns. It's going to diminish with time and repetition. And, and, and so Satan's going to convince you, oh, you've got you to have the joys of the earth. Guess what? Those joys aren't going to last forever. But God, only God can give you a joy that lasts forever. And he can give you a joy that even when you're going through persecution, you can find joy. Imagine that. Persecution. We find joy. Satan's going to say, hey, the world's, not, the world's going to hate you. If you side with the sovereign, the world will hate you. You don't want the world to hate you. In fact, the world might even kill you. And, uh, and I'm not trying to tell you that, 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 that it's not true. You know what? If you side with the sovereign, and if, you're, if you've come today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that in just a few moments. If you've never done that, I would invite you to do that. But I'll tell you what. If you do... Some of these things are true. The world will hate you for it. They might persecute you for it. In fact, some, the day may come where you might be killed for it. Okay. But guess what? That's because Satan's powerful. But remember, Satan is powerful, but what? God is sovereign. In the end, I'm going to stand with a glorified body that will last for eternity and be in the presence of my Creator. So there's nothing you can do to touch me. You can kill me. That's nothing. Because I have a glorified body waiting for me. I have an eternity with my creator waiting for me. So there's nothing you can really do to touch me. Imagine going through life like that. Oh, you get a disease and you're going to die? Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's, there's sadness. But it's a temporary sadness. And you can find joy in that. Oh, people are persecuting you? They're calling you the hater as they want to kill you for it? <laughs> okay. We can, we can take that, right? Why? Because Satan's powerful, but, but God is sovereign. And so I would in, encourage you in just a few moments, if there's anyone here who's never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, don't walk out the doors today without making that decision. Right now is the time to make that right with God. Now, there might be some in here who have already made that decision. You, I've already sided with the sovereign. I'm, I'm there. I have one more application that's, that's for you. It's be patient and endure any consequence of that decision. In other words, you are going to go through some bad things, most likely. If you are a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian and you live like a Christian, there will be negative consequences on earth for that decision. Why? Because what do earth dwellers do? As we get closer and closer to the end times, we find that earth dwellers are going to persecute Christians. And we understand it's not, the, it's not just the people. It's the one pulling the, str the strings behind the scenes. Who's that? It's Satan, the dragon, who's pulling the strings. Why? Because he's already lost and he knows it. 
He's lost and he knows it. He's going to persecute you for it. But you have a God who's waiting and says, hey, whatever you go through, I'm going to make it worth your time when you get to heaven. I'm going to make it worth your time and that you're going to be blessed for that. And, uh, and I'll tell you what, that gives us strength to live life the way God intended. That's why we can read passages like Isaiah 40, 31 that says, but those who wait in the Lord, what does that mean? Those who side with the sovereign, they will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Why? That's the type of life I want to live. How about you? And how many Christians are there who say, well, I've made the decision, but, uh, and so I know that I'm going to heaven, but, boy, they just kind of still struggle like, the, like this weakling through the, through the trials of earth. And, 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 like, no, why? Don't live like that. Wait on the Lord. He'll renew your strength. He'll mount you up with wings like eagles. He'll protect you in the last minute when, he, when, when, when protection is called for. He'll do whatever it takes, and he'll be there for you. And even if that means that maybe physically you even get killed, that's okay. That means he's not done yet. He's going to give you a glorified body. And he's going to give you an eternity. And that's what we look forward to today. So my encouragement for those who have already accepted Christ is, is change your perspective on everything. Start walking through life like this. Knowing that you have a God who's sovereign. Now when you think of that point, Satan is powerful, but God is sovereign. Walk through life with a sovereign God. It'll change everything. It'll change the way you live your life. And so in a few minutes, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. If you were one of the people who would say, you know what, Pastor Dave, I've never actually made the decision. I'm still in that part of life where I'm trying to decide which way I'm going to go. Am I going to be the master of my own universe, or am I going to give myself to the Lord? If that's you today, I would ask you to come forward. And I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm just going to, 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 to have someone sit down with you with a Bible and show you how you can know for sure that if you were to die today, you'd have eternal life. To know that you are in God's side. And there would be, there's no other decision. In fact, if you've made that decision before, can, if, if you would attest to, me, to say that that's the best decision you've ever made in your life, would you just say amen? amen? And we would love to see someone make that decision today. I would also invite you, if you would like to come forward, just to, to say, you know what? I'm just going to say to the Lord, you know what, Lord? I recognize that, 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 that you're already on my side. I recognize that, and I'm just coming forward to let you know that I'm going to live my life in light of this. And I'm going to live my life in such a way that, that I will let you renew my strength. I will let you be my rescuer, and I will not fear the world. I will not fear the storm as we sang about. Why? Because my help is in the Lord. And that when trouble comes, when trials come, where am I going to lift my eyes? I'm going to lift my eyes up unto the Lord because that's where my help comes from. And maybe you're in that place today where you just need to come forward so that you can lift your eyes up to the Lord. I'm going to invite you to do that today, this morning as well. We won't bother you. It's between you and God. Just come forward and do that right after we pray and as we sing. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the encouragement that it is to us. Lord, I do pray that we would lift our eyes up to you. For some, Lord, that are in this room, it might be the need to lift their eyes up to you for salvation, literal salvation. They need to understand what it means to side with you, to accept the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And I pray that if there's anyone in this room that has not done that, that they would do that right here, right now. Or there may be others in this room right now that are just struggling. 
and the world's got them down and the persecution's got them down and difficulties and diseases and sicknesses and injuries may have them down. But Lord, I just pray right now that you'd tug their hearts, bring them forward so that they can just lift their eyes to you and, and trust that their help is going to come from you. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing just as I am. And if the Lord's working in your heart, right now is the time to respond.